This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books Criminal Law by University of Minnesota, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License, and Criminal Procedure, a free law school casebook by Ben Trachtenberg and Anne Alexander, published by Kali E. Langdell Press, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing these books and providing them to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Criminal Law Lectures. This is lecture number one. And in this lecture, we'll be discussing an introduction to criminal law and constitutional protections. So a crime is an action or inaction in violation of a criminal law. And criminal laws vary from state to state and from state to federal. The study of criminal law defines crimes and defenses to crimes. The study of criminal procedure focuses on the enforcement of rights by individuals while submitting to government investigation, arrest, interrogation, trial, and appeal. A criminal prosecution takes place when the government, represented by a prosecutor, takes legal action against a defendant, the alleged wrongdoer, for committing a crime. Every criminal prosecution involves the government. So the U.S. and state constitutions provide criminal defendants with extra protections not present in a civil lawsuit, such as access to counsel in certain circumstances. Crimes can, in general, be classified according to the severity of punishment. The most serious crimes with the entire range of sentencing options available, are called felonies. Misdemeanors are less serious than felonies and have less severe sentencing options. Felony misdemeanors can be prosecuted and punished as a felony or a misdemeanor, depending on the circumstances. Infractions, also called violations, are the least serious crimes and generally do not involve incarceration. The U.S. Constitution provides protections to criminal defendants, and in these lectures, we will visit relevant parts of the U.S. Constitution as they relate to criminal law and procedure. So moving to the Fourth Amendment and a search, we begin our exploration of criminal law with the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. 
The Fourth Amendment is short, and it reflects the desires of those who wrote and ratified it to protect Americans against unreasonable government intrusion into our daily lives. The amendment mentions some of the more important aspects of a person's life, her house, her papers, her effects, even her person, that is, her body, and declares that government agents may not unreasonably search or seize those things. Here is the text. Quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. End quote. These words have inspired arguments about their meaning. For example, what counts is a house and thereby merits protection from unreasonable searches. Is it limited to physical buildings in which people live? Or is some area outside the structure included? The Supreme Court eventually defined the concept of curtilage, which is an outdoor area that the court treats as part of the house. The word search for purposes of the Fourth Amendment does not have its normal English meaning, that is, something to the effect of try to find something or look for something. Instead, the Supreme Court has created a legal term of art. Some activities that one might normally describe with the word search, such as looking through someone's garbage in the hope of finding something interesting, turn out not to count as searches in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. The Fourth Amendment protects the people's persons, houses, papers, and effects. While this language is quite broad, it does not include everything someone might possess or wish to protect from intrusion. For example, if one owns agricultural land far from any house, that land is not a person a house, a paper, or an effect. Police searches of such land, therefore, are not searches regulated by the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment provides that no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause. Accordingly, warrants and the searches that followed in the wake of their issuance have been challenged on the ground that police did not provide sufficient evidence when obtaining the warrants from judges. In addition, the court has held that in several common situations, police may conduct searches and seizures without a warrant, but only with probable cause. The court has stated repeatedly that searches conducted without a warrant are presumptively unreasonable and, accordingly, are presumptive violations of the Fourth Amendment. Although one can argue whether the court truly enforces a warrant requirement, one cannot deny the importance of valid warrants to a huge range of police conduct. For example, absent exceptional circumstances, such as officers chasing a fleeing felon, 
Police normally must have a valid warrant to search a resident without the occupant's permission. To be valid, a warrant must obey the Fourth Amendment's command that no warrants shall issue, but upon a probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. This portion of the amendment is known as the Warrant Clause. It requires, one, that the evidence presented to the issuing judge or magistrate be sufficient to qualify as probable cause. Two, that the officers bringing the evidence to the judge or magistrate swear or affirm that the evidence is true to the best of their knowledge. Three, that the warrant specify where officers can search. And four, that the warrant specify what things or persons officers may look for and may seize if found. In addition, the court has held that only a neutral and detached magistrate may issue a warrant. That means the judge or magistrate must be independent of law enforcement. A state attorney general cannot issue warrants. In Connolly v. Georgia, the court held that a justice of the peace who received payment upon issuing a warrant, but no fee upon denying a warrant application, was not neutral and detached. The plain view exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement permits a law enforcement officer to seize what clearly is incriminating evidence or contraband when it is discovered in a place where the officer has a right to be. When police perform a lawful arrest, they are allowed to search the arrestee. The permissible scope of such searches, known as searches incident to lawful arrest, or SILA or SILA, has been the subject of multiple Supreme Court cases. No warrant is required for a search incident to lawful arrest. For a search to be justified as a search incident to a lawful arrest, one, there must have been an arrest. Two, the arrest must have been lawful. And three, the search must be incident to the arrest, that is, close in time and space to the arrest. Note that because police often need no warrant to arrest a suspect, a search incident to lawful arrest can sometimes result from two distinct warrant exceptions. The first allows the underlying arrest, and the second allows the ensuing search. As is true of most constitutional rights, the right to be free from warrantless searches can be waived. Police investigations rely every day on such consent. Owners of vehicles and luggage allow officers to search their effects, and occupants of houses allow officers to enter and look around. There is no dispute about the principle that genuine consent serves as a valid substitute for a search warrant. The controversial questions include what is necessary for consent to be valid, who may provide valid consent, and whether certain police tactics render otherwise valid consent ineffective. 
The court has grouped a handful of recurring situations under the umbrella term exigent circumstances. This exception allows police to conduct searches without warrants as long as officers have probable cause to believe that one of the approved kinds of unusual situations, that is, exigent circumstances, exists. For all of the categories of exigent circumstances, the court has decided that seeking a warrant would be impossible, or at least impractical. The key categories are, one, hot pursuit of a fleeing criminal suspect. Two, protection of public safety from immediate threats. And three, preservation of evidence that officers have probable cause to believe is subject to seizure and will be found on the premises from destruction. When persons and items enter the United States from abroad, agents of the executive enjoy expansive authority to conduct searches and seizures without a warrant. The court has repeatedly chosen to provide relatively little judicial oversight of the executive's use of that authority, especially when compared to oversight of common domestic policing. In general, no quantum of evidence or suspicion is needed. Checkpoints are generally aimed at protecting the public from intoxicated drivers. Checkpoints involve stopping cars randomly or otherwise selecting cars to stop without any specific reason to believe that the drivers are intoxicated or otherwise breaking the law or transporting items subject to seizure. Accordingly, vehicle checkpoints can be permissible only if the court allows police seizures of persons and property without even reasonable suspicion, much less probable cause. The question is whether such seizures are reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Although law enforcement officers conduct the bulk of the searches and seizures, other government agents also perform searches and seizures outside the context of normal policing. In public schools, teachers and other school officials must conduct searches to promote safety and to foster an environment conducive to education. Yet students do not forfeit all rights at school, and some searches of students and their effects are unreasonable. Note that because the Fourth Amendment regulates only state actors, private school students are not protected against unreasonable school searches, unless the government is somehow involved. Now moving to the Miranda Rule and interrogations. In Miranda versus Arizona, the court created a method of regulating police interrogations of suspects. Rather than search the records of each case for evidence of voluntariness, the court set forth a procedure under which law enforcement officers must inform suspects of certain constitutional rights and the potential consequences of waiving those rights. Under this rule, the court would presume confessions were obtained involuntarily if officers failed to follow this procedure, and such a presumption would lead to exclusion of confessions from evidence at trial. Most people are familiar with the Miranda warnings. Prior to a custodial interrogation, officers must inform suspects of the following. 1. 
you have the right to remain silent. Two, anything you say can be used against you. Three, you have the right to an attorney. And four, an attorney will be provided by the government if you cannot pay. The Miranda rule applies only during custodial interrogation. Therefore, unless a suspect is both in custody and being interrogated, police need not provide the warnings described in Miranda. In Miranda, the court wrote, By custodial interrogation, we mean questioning initiated by law enforcement officers after a person has been taken into custody or otherwise deprived of his freedom of action in any significant way. Subsequent cases, however, have strayed from the expansive definition of custody implied by the words, deprived of his freedom of action in any significant way. Note that the definition of custody under Miranda differs from the definition of a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes. In other words, a person can be seized or detained, but not be in a situation in which Miranda warnings are required before police may begin interrogation. Yet Fourth Amendment law remains a useful touchstone Because if a person is not seized, that is, if a reasonable person in her situation would have felt free to leave, then it will be difficult to argue that she was in custody for Miranda purposes. In Miranda versus Arizona, the court summarized its holding as follows. Quote, The prosecution may not use statements, whether exculpatory or inculpatory, stemming from custodial interrogation of the defendant unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards effective to secure the privilege against self-incrimination, end quote. The court then explained that unless other fully effective means are devised to inform accused persons of their right of silence and to assure a continuous opportunity to exercise it, police would be required to provide certain information, the Miranda warnings, to suspects. There are three important exceptions that the court has created to the Miranda rule. Under each of these exceptions, a prosecutor may use statements against a defendant even though, one, those statements were obtained through custodial interrogation, and two, police either did not provide the Miranda warnings or did so but did not obtain a valid waiver. The three exceptions are known as the impeachment exception, the emergency exception, also known as the public safety exception, and the routine booking exception. Now moving to the Sixth Amendment. The text of the Sixth Amendment says nothing about interrogations, but it does have at least one useful hint about its applicability the phrase, in all criminal prosecutions. If there is no prosecution, there is no Sixth Amendment. The court has clarified that prosecution is not limited to trials, and it has also stated that mere arrest isn't enough. There must be some sort of formal proceeding. The Sixth Amendment provides, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. 
the court has held that once a defendant's right to counsel has attached, additional rules restrict interrogations. These rules differ from the Miranda rule in important ways. For example, the assistance of counsel clause applies regardless of whether a suspect is in custody. Further, the restrictions imposed under the clause apply to undercover agents as well as to interrogators whom suspects know to be police officers. When a defendant seeks to exclude evidence allegedly obtained in violation of the Constitution, the judge normally decides the suppression motion by preponderance of the evidence. With most court motions, the burden of persuasion is on the moving party, meaning that a tie is resolved in favor of the non-moving party. Accordingly, a defendant arguing that a magistrate issued a search warrant without probable cause would have the burden of proof. There are, however, situations in which the prosecution bears the burden of proof. When a confession is challenged as involuntary, for example, the prosecution must prove, at least by a preponderance of the evidence, that the confession was voluntary. When defendants seek exclusion of evidence on constitutional grounds, the standard procedure is for the judge to hold a suppression hearing outside the presence of the jury. Each side may present witnesses. Police officers commonly testify about what things they observed in advance of a stop or arrest that justified a seizure under review. They also explain what evidence provided probable cause to justify warrantless searches under doctrines such as the automobile exception and exigent circumstances. Defendants may testify in support of their suppression motions, and absent unusual circumstances, their testimony at suppression hearings may not be used against them at trial. Under this rule, a defendant may testify that a suitcase belonged to him in order to establish standing to object to an unlawful search of the suitcase without providing the prosecution a damaging admission usable to prove guilt. If the judge finds for the defendant, then the excluded evidence cannot be shown to the jury. In cases where the prosecution's primary evidence is challenged as unlawfully obtained, for example, a gun seized from a defendant who is then charged with unlawfully possessing it, a suppression ruling in the defendant's favor can result in the dismissal of the charges. A defendant who loses her pretrial suppression motion may, if subsequently convicted, raise her suppression argument again on appeal. Again, the Sixth Amendment provides in all criminal prosecutions the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. For more than a century after the ratification of the amendment, this right allowed criminal defendants to hire their own lawyers but did not require the government to provide counsel to indigent defendants who could not afford to hire counsel. In 1932, the court held that state court indigent defendants must be provided counsel in death penalty cases. 
although the courts soon thereafter required federal courts to provide counsel even in non-capital cases. The court held in 1942 that for ordinary felony cases, state courts could decide for themselves whether to appoint counsel to indigent defendants. In 1963, the court reversed Betts v. Brady in the landmark case of Gideon v. Wainwright. Gideon asked for counsel when charged with a Florida crime, and the state judge refused to appoint him a lawyer. After his conviction, he appealed unsuccessfully in Florida courts. He then sent a handwritten note to the Supreme Court, which agreed to take the case. The court unanimously held that, in criminal cases, states are required to provide an attorney to defendants who are unable to afford them. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.